Hey, my name is Kevin Clark. I'm the host of a new football podcast called Slow News Day. I want to tell you about it. On Mondays, Lindsey Jones and I will recap the weekend in football that was, as well as look ahead to what's next. On Wednesday, the normal Slow News Day, the thing you've been watching for years, current players, current coaches, current analysts talking about the football world. And on Friday, it's a wild card. Could be some college football, could be more pro stuff. It's a video podcast, so you can watch it on Spotify or listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. Follow on Spotify. It's Slow News Day. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. April showers bring a loaded sports calendar, and FanDuel is the place to bet on it all. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page in the Pulse and get paid instantly when you win. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Joining us now, senior staff writer at The Ringer. You hear him on Bill's podcast as well. It is Michael Pina. Michael, what's going on, man? Not too much, Brian. How you doing, man? Well, I'll tell you this. I'm doing a lot better than I was doing like 48 hours ago after the Celtics had got their ass kicked by the Oklahoma City Thunder. Nice to see them sort of restore order last night and beat down in a Dallas team that had been red hot coming into that one. Yeah, uh, you'd you'd expect to see a bounce back from a team that's one of the best in the league and a championship contender coming off one of the most embarrassing losses in franchise history. So it was good to see them get on the the right side of the ledger. All right. So Joe Missoula, we talked about him early this season. The team was off to an 18 and four start. They had this historically great offense, but over the past couple of weeks, there's been some things that sort of stick out that at the beginning of the season, they weren't issues, but now it seems like maybe they are like this whole thing, Pina, about the no timeouts where Okay, this is my thing on it. Okay, well, this is a veteran team that just played in the NBA Finals last year. Like, I don't think they need to go through these growing moments of sort of, for lack of a better term, playing through it. Like, we see this happen all the time at, like, the collegiate level. Where do you stand with the no timeouts, no timeout, Joe? This is the first time anyone's asked me this. Um, you know, I I don't have too much of a problem with it. Uh, it's. I wrote a story for Sports Illustrated a few years ago where I talked to almost every head coach in the NBA about their timeout strategy. And I thought it was really fascinating to hear different, like Mike D'Antoni, for example, I think he was last in the league at the time in timeouts called. And his philosophy was basically, um, 
let my guys figure it out on the court in the flow. I trust my guys. I have vets on the floor. I don't, if I call a timeout, I can only make it worse with, I mean, he's just obviously being Mike D'Antoni. Um, so I don't, I don't really have too much of an issue. I do think that this team should be able to figure things out within the flow of a basketball game. The timeouts, um, the 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 pro reason for calling timeouts in certain situations would be, in my opinion, to get Tatum and Jalen bits of rest, and maybe that's one of the reasons in Joe the back of Joe Mazzulla's head where he wants to preserve them for late game situations where he can do that. I I don't know. I haven't talked to Joe about that um, because those guys play a ton of minutes and have a lot of responsibility on both ends, but. Besides that, I, I don't really have too much of an issue with it now. <laughs> yeah. What about in general with Missoula? Because, I mean, obviously we were praising him at the beginning of the season. But you look at what Ime did for this team last year where really, I mean, he deserves a ton of credit for the turnaround. I mean, certainly the players do, especially the stars, Tatum and Brown. And moving smart to point guard was obviously a massive thing for the organization because it helped them so much defensively as well, where he's like your smallest player on the court. But Ime was such a strong personality. Joe, not really the same. Obviously, he wants to be like who he is. He can't try to be somebody different. But do you have any concerns about Missoula? I guess we really can't know until we get into a postseason series, but it doesn't seem like he has that, like, for lack of a better term, that same control that Ime had over the team where they have to look at Ime and say, okay, he's part of the reason we're here. With Joe Missoula, it's like, okay, yeah, he's helped us this year with some things offensively, but I just wonder if there's that same trust factor when you get into a big game that they had with Ime. I can only go by what the players say, and the players trust Joe Missoula. The players love Joe Missoula. They all have really good relationships and ties with him. And um, I believe it was after the Oklahoma City Thunder game where Joe Missoula called out all the role players on the team in a stern way and basically said that they're not living up to their end of the bargain in terms of not supporting Jalen and Jason Tatum on a consistent basis, hitting shots, um, being in the right spot on defensive rotations, hustling back in transition. So, and I feel like they got that message in the Mavericks game and it's only one game and this is a long season. We're not even at the all-star break yet. So I, I don't really have any concerns with Joe Missoula, especially, you know, the Celtics are the best, second best team in the league. They had a very impressive win on Christmas Day against the Milwaukee Bucks. They beat the Los Angeles Clippers, obviously. Less impressive for anyone who watched the Los Angeles Clippers play the Denver Nuggets last night, but they've had some pretty quality wins lately. And they still have, I think, do they still have the best offense in the NBA, I believe? Yep. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's really hard to get too worked up and... I also want to see this team 100% healthy before I start criticizing any coaches. Well, that's a good point, too, that he, if he called out the role players, it worked last night because Grant had his best game in some time. Derek White had his best game in some time, as did Malcolm Brogdon. And all those guys had sort of been struggling when this team was on that 8-8 eight and eight run. But Jason Tatum against the Mavs last night, he ends up with a triple-double, only the second of his career. And I don't say that as an indictment. I say it because... It's got to be a message, right? I mean, you look at it, the FanDuel odds right now, the leading two candidates for the MVP in terms of the odds are Luca and Jason Tatum. I know you had a great piece up on The Ringer about Luca being the MVP and the most improved, <laughs> but Tatum, I mean, he's got to make this statement, right? Where it's like, this guy never gets triple doubles. And like I said, I'm not saying that it's a criticism of Jason Tatum. It's not his type of game, but man, a triple double in Luca's house. Like, he had to have been thinking about that when he got close to it, right? I think... 
I think you might be onto something. I think a lot of players around the league right now, you saw Lowry Markinen drop 49 last night in the Houston Rockets. I think a lot of <laughs> players are like looking at things that Luke at 60 point, 21 rebound, 10 assist or whatever it was, triple double. Um, Donovan Mitchell, 71 near triple double. Um, they're like looking around and they're like, how can I be the next dude who has just this absolute monster performance? Like I, I'm... Personally, I'm I'm waiting for. I feel like Steph Curry has been just watching the entire league catch on fire, and he's like, "I'm com- <laughs> I'm coming for Will Chamberlain this year." Like, I, I just want to see it. I I really do. I think that these guys are, um, with all the spacing, with all the advantages and the rules and how the game is officiated. I think like just I, I don't think that this is a blip right now in January and late December. I think that this is kind of where the NBA is. But to your point, for Tatum. He wants the MVP, obviously. Um, he's talked about that. And, you know, he didn't have the most efficient performance in Dallas. I think he was 8 for 22 from the floor. And the game was kind of handled for the most part. The Celtics were up by double digits for the majority of the last three quarters. Um, but, yeah, finishing with a triple-double, that's just kind of like not how he controls the game. He's not like Luka. He's not like a... Uh, I mean, a Nikola Jokic. That's really not how Jason Tatum plays. So you're not going to see a lot of triple doubles. Um, but all around per- impressive performance for him after I thought in the Oklahoma City Thunder game, he really took a step back defensively as much as offensively in that performance where he was just making sloppy mistakes left and right, gambling for steals. Um, and you saw just the Oklahoma City Thunder were punishing them from the three point line on those driving kicks every time anyone on the Celtics was out of position. So I, you know, it's good to see Tatum get the triple double. Um, and I want to see him like gun for 60, 70. I feel like that's in the back of his mind as well. Yeah. And with Tatum too, I think obviously I'm not saying he's the best player in the league in terms of his resume, et cetera. But I think in terms of like the superstars around the league right now, he may be the easiest to build around just because like he doesn't have the ball in his hands all the time like Luca does. It's not like there's a real flaw with his game where he can't shoot from the outside or something along those lines. And it's not like you have to protect him at all at the defensive end. In fact, he's been for the past couple of years an elite defender in the NBA. And one of the things that stuck out to me last night, Pina, is watching that game is like, holy shit, look at the Celtics roster around their superstar and Jason Tatum compared to the Mavs with Luka Doncic. Like, I can't believe how much better. I mean, I guess I can believe because I know the names on the court, right? But isn't it jarring to look at how talented the Celtics are and what they've done for the young player compared to what the Mavericks have done for Luka Doncic? I'm so glad you said this because this was what I was writing down in my notebook when I was watching the game. I was like, forget about Jalen Brown. Forget about if Jalen Brown was on the Dallas Mavericks. And if he was, could you even imagine how good that team would be? But put Malcolm Brogdon on the Mavericks and it's like, this team has a real shot at winning the title this season. That's how good Luka is. That's how amazing he makes everyone else around him look. And just like that type of piece of a ball handler who can get to the rim, who can hit spot-up threes, who can create looks for other players. Like, he doesn't really have that. He has Spencer Dinwiddie, who's fine. But just like, what, take any one player off the Celtics roster and move him to the Mavericks. I was just thinking, like, Derek White, put him on the Mavericks. Like, how much better would the Mavericks be? Um, Grant, Will- Grant Williams is kind of where I cut the bar. I was like, if you put Grant, Will- <laughs> like they, like they could really use a three point shooter who can defend all five positions. Like that's just, especially with the injuries that they've had this year. So 
yeah, Luca's supporting cast is terrible. I mean, there's really no way around it. And there's been a lot of injuries this season. Maxi Kleber going out for what's likely the rest of the season with a hamstring injury is really devastating for them. And uh, Dorian Finney-Smith, Josh Green, these guys have been out for weeks. I, you just look around and it's like Kemba Walker is coming off the bench. He's not like in the rotation, but he's on the team in this like minor role. And obviously we saw Kemba up close in the waning days of his days of, as a relevant player. So like their, their supporting cast for him is, is uh, really lacking. And Jason Tatum probably has the best supporting cast of any superstar in basketball right now. Um, I haven't thought about that too deeply, but it's, I think it's safe to say he's got all-star talent, three-point shooting, defensive versatility. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, I mean, he has a defensive player of the year as his point guard, rating defensive player of the year. So it's, uh, it's kind of night and day with the two situations that those two players are walking into every night on the basketball yeah. court. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Kemba, too, because before last night, like I had known he was on the Mavericks like I saw it when he signed with the team. But when he came on the court last night, I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot <laughs> Kemba <laughs> plays for the Mavericks. And I know he's been banged up, which is not a shocker to us. So I saw this yesterday and I want to get your take on it because I feel like an idiot. I can't remember who tweeted. It may have been StatMuse, but basically it was saying how great Kevin Durant has been from mid-range. He's over 59%. I think he was like nine percentage points better than anybody that was attempting four per game. And when I saw that, I'm thinking to myself, no, that can't be true because Jalen Brown has been so good from mid-range. And so Jalen is over 54%. He's at 54.4%, but he's under four attempts. So that's why he didn't qualify for this thing that it was like 10 people. Like, I mean, that was the list. There was not many guys that attempt more than four mid-rangers per game. And if you look at, if you go over three, the only guys that are shooting better than him from mid-range are Durant and Bradley Beal. So, and I had this take a couple of weeks ago that I know it goes against the math game in the NBA where you want to take a lot of threes. But if you look at Jalen, he's taken 8.6 threes per game, shooting 34.6%. And he's gone down each of the past three seasons. And Durant is only taken 4.8 threes per game, so almost half as much. And I just wonder if Jalen Brown, and I know this kind of goes against the Celtics offense, but Jalen has proven in the postseason he's an elite shot maker. And we've seen by the numbers, he's an elite mid-range shooter. I wonder if the Celtics should try to get to Jalen like, hey, get to the mid-range more because he's never been. And I trust him in like a big game to hit a big three. I mean, we've seen it time and time again, but mm -hmm. I don't know. Like, I think that maybe he should look at what Durant's doing and not say that he can be Kevin Durant, but maybe get to the mid-range more, even though like 99% of the league, you would tell them, hey, take more threes, take less mid-range jumpers. Jalen may be the exception there. He's an elite mid-range shooter. Um, I think that when you look at who Jalen is, those stop and pops where defenders are so concerned with him on blow buys getting all the way to the basket that he can get to that elbow pull up anytime he wants when he's going downhill and his body control and his balance is stupendous. So that's just kind of in his bag um, as something that can bail out the Celtics offense whenever. And frankly, it's not a bad shot at any point in the shot clock. Really? I think Joe Missoula might argue with me when I say that, but <laughs> His percentages have been terrific, as you pointed out this season, and I don't think that you should necessarily go out of your way to take mid-range pull-ups, especially contested ones, and comparing anyone to KD in the season that he's having is like yeah. kind of <laughs> difficult, and KD's kind of his own animal where he just, he's got a hand in his face, he's got two guys draped all over him, it just doesn't matter with him, he's just hitting the shot. 
So Katie's just kind of on his own planet there. And frankly, when I watch Katie play, I think he should take more threes. And he's just, he can do whatever he wants because he's Kevin Durant. Um, but Jalen, I, I don't necessarily think I would, I would suggest he drift too far away from the three-point line. I think particularly on the plays where he drives, kicks, relocates, get behind the, the arc, catches it back, gets a spot-up look that's open, those shots typically fall for him. And we've seen throughout his career, he's gotten just, he's had just volcanic eruptions behind the arc for stretches where he just completely takes over a half or completely takes over a quarter and puts the other team away. So I think that he's very capable, obviously, from behind the three-point line. The percentage, as you said, has dipped. I believe he's below... Um, Marcus Smart right now in three-point percentage. Um, I think I checked that this morning. So he's, you know, there's room for improvement there for sure. But the mid-range, he's got it going for him, absolutely. And it's kind of an unstoppable shot. And it's the type of shot also that in the postseason when teams are trying to take away threes and they're trying to take away shots at the rim, those will be there. That's why Chris Middleton's had so much success in the playoffs. Devin Booker's had so much success in the playoffs. KD... Um, all these guys who DeMar DeRozan, when he gets to the playoffs, sometimes has success. Just because you can get the look off anytime you want. Kawhi Leonard lives in the mid-range. So if Jalen has that going for him in a playoff series, you're not going to say, hey, stop shooting it. Um, and it's a weapon, absolutely, for sure, for the Celtics team. All right, so I was looking at, too, like the Jalen minutes this year without Tatum have been significantly better than they were last year. Like the offense would be in the top five. Last year it would be like 27th in the NBA. When Tatum was off the court last year, it fell off the map. But one other thing is since Rob came back, him and Jalen without Tatum on the court together, their offensive rating goes through the roof. It's like over 122. So I do wonder, like I never thought it would be this way. I thought it'd be like, okay, Jalen surrounded with a bunch of shooters. That may be the best offense for Jalen. But I'm wondering, like, what do you make of when Tatum's off the court to keep Robert Williams on there with Jalen? Just because, like, if Jalen gets any sort of advantage to the point you were making, he's either going to get to his mid-range game, he can get to the basket, defenses sort of fear him. And with the pick-and-pop guys, it's like, okay, they can sag off a little bit, try to recover. With Rob, he can't really do that because he's going to the basket to try to get an alley-oop. So do you like the idea of having Robert Williams and Jalen on the court together when Tatum's off, like try to keep those two together? Yeah, I think that that's for sure interesting. I think the one player who I would prioritize uh, handcuffing to Jalen in minutes when Tatum isn't on the floor is Malcolm Brogdon as much mm. as possible. He's the guy who, um, I mean, he's just, he has experience as a starting point guard in the NBA. That's what he was with the Indiana Pacers. He can um, initiate offense. He can run a pick and roll. He can be the secondary option. He can hit spot-up threes, pull-up threes, get to the basket, get to the free-throw line. So having him be someone who can settle things down as a, as a ball handler in situations where um, playmaking has not necessarily Jalen's strong suit this season or throughout his entire career, he's made um, incremental strides, but that's just not... I don't want him necessarily running a second unit. So I love... Pairing him with Rob, I love pairing Jalen with really good players when Tatum isn't on the floor. But I think Malcolm Brogdon would be the priority, and I haven't looked at the numbers to see how often those two share the floor without Tatum and what the offensive rating is and how they perform together. But that would be kind of what I would be um, – that's how I would shape my rotation if I was Joe Mazzola. That would be a priority for me. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So Jalen doesn't have to handle that playmaking role and just can be the finisher like he is when he has Marcus Smart and Jason Tatum on the court with him. Oh, speaking of Brogdon, so he was so good at the beginning of the season, really until the start of December, shooting the three, 49%. And then 
Last night, he hits three of five, which is great to see. But since the start of December entering last night, he was at like 32%. And I feel like, all right, he's going to get his shot back. We know that as a catch-and-shoot shooter, he's really good. Sometimes he struggled in Indiana in the pull-up game. But the one other thing I was looking at is his finishing in the restricted area. He was one for one last night, but he's at 51.2%. And I can only find like a handful of guys that are attempting two or more in the restricted area per game that are lower than that. Do you think there's an issue there, like with the finishing? It is anything to be concerned about? I mean, obviously, we love the playmaking. We love his ability to shoot the three. But and his drive game has been so impactful for this team. I think it's part of the reason the Celtics were up to that great start offensively, because all their threes, it felt like were from the drive and kick variety. But any reason to be concerned about Brogdon in terms of his at times inability to finish? Yeah, that's a really low number, um, 50% at the basket, even if you are a guard. Uh, that's really not what you want, and it is surprising given how much spacing the Celtics have on the court pretty much at all times. And when I watch him play, it doesn't really seem like he has too many contested looks around the rim that he's forcing. So that's a that's a tricky one. I feel like his floaters and the shots that are outside the restricted area have been pretty good this year. Um, on par but yeah like I don't think I'm concerned because I don't need him to be someone who can finish at the basket like one of the reasons that he's there is to create for others to limit turnovers to hit threes and so generally speaking for the season he's done those things Uh, I would assume that he won't finish the season at 50% of the room I mean he's never been like uh, uh, like John Morant around the basket, but that's a really low number that I think the Celtics probably want to see tick up in these next few months for sure. Yeah, I'm not like overly concerned. It was just kind of jarring that I when that I saw that number, it kind of stuck out to me. Now, getting back to Rob real quickly here, like the offensive numbers, we expect the defensive numbers to be great with Rob, but the offensive numbers with him on the floor have been through the roof. The offensive rebounding percentage goes to better than the league's best to like 27th without him on there. And the two-point percentage goes to better than the league best when he's on the court. And I'm just wondering this, like his per 36 numbers in terms of rebounds and points are the best they've ever been in his career. So one of the things I was wondering is you look at the minutes he's playing right now, it's 19. Last year, he's over 29. Do you think they have to, and especially considering the injury history, do you think it'd be more beneficial for them? Because what we've seen this year is he's not really getting fatigued. We saw it last year at times where he would get fatigued and they'd have to pull him up because, I mean, in his defense, the guy is all over the place. He's balls to the wall. But what do you think is like the perfect minute range for Robert Williams going forward? Obviously, it's got to be more than 19. Is it like 23 to 24? Is it 25? I mean, I would just like to stay away from close to 30. Yeah, I mean... It's a, I think you got to, if you're having success in the regular season without burning out Robert Williams, then that's a good thing, I think. This team obviously has greater aspirations, and going through a gauntlet of four straight playoff rounds is a different story, especially when you only get one day off between playoff games. And Robert Williams obviously struggled last year with that, where it was kind of just how you feel when you wake up in the morning, if he's going to play, it was a total question mark from the Eastern Conference Finals on. So I think if you can continue to win and have successful minutes when he's on the court for 20 minutes a night, then that's terrific. I think in the playoffs, you definitely want to be able to ramp that up. And I'm kind of a proponent of eventually him 
getting back to the starting lineup. Like, I think that that is something that um, the success that that group had last year and just how that can um, kind of bring order to the rest of the rotation, I feel like is a good thing in a playoff series. And especially if you have a matchup like the Philadelphia 76ers, for example, you want to be really big. You want to not get dominated on the boards. Um, On-offs in the finals, Rob was by far the most important uh, Celtic, and they were plus like a million and minus a million when he was on and off the floor against the Golden State Warriors. He just has such an impact on basketball games for everybody, creating second-chance opportunities. Obviously, he's a rim-protecting presence that they don't have when he's not out there. So I would love to see him get minutes back with the starting five at some point. I don't know what the plan is there, honestly. Um, I'm a little surprised that it, they haven't started him yet, and I don't think that that's a concern at all. But I do think that this team, this team's ceiling can be hit when he's in the starting five. That's what I want to see. Yeah, and you would like to see, to your point, like a runway before the postseason where those guys are back in the starting lineup together, and then everybody else can sort of figure out their role from there. Because I mean, it was great to watch those guys play defense last year when Rob and Al were on the court together. All right, so. Peanut, we see the NBA, they have all these different trophies now. You get like the regular season trophy, all these different things. So I'm trying to see if I can get like a belt or a trophy for the leading shot blocker for guards because Derek White has now tied Shea Gilgis Alexander after he had the unbelievable block last night on Dinwiddie, which is like, I don't know what Great Dinwiddie. Block. Great yeah. block. <laughs> I don't know what Dinwiddie was thinking there. He didn't even really have good control of the ball when he went up for that one-handed slam. But now he's at 35. Last year, he finished second in shots blocked for guards. You think there's any way the NBA can... I mean, they're giving out an award for everything. Can they get like a belt maybe for Derek White if he wins this award? I don't know why guys are still testing him. And I really don't know how he blocks all these shots. I mean, sometimes I guess they're technically like almost strips. But some of them, like it feels like he almost baits the guy into it where he lets him get a little bit ahead of him and he'll get him from behind. I mean, it is remarkable to see how many shots this guy blocks because he's not that big of a guy. He's so good trailing ball screens and... Uh, contesting from behind, as you said, that's like his like best attribute as a basketball player. Sometimes, um, instead of a belt, let's do like a fly swatter. I feel like Ooh. the league could get like a gold fly swatter and have that in bronzed and pass it out to Derek White. Maybe I, I, Celtics fans won't like this, but it would probably be named after Dwayne Wade, probably the greatest shot blocking guard of all time, or. Um, John Wall could have it be named after him. I'm trying to think of other guards who are just have been great shot blockers in the past. Um, but Derek White is, I feel like it's so funny to me how he's the guy who um, other teams pick on when he's on the court. And it's like, this guy would be like probably whatever team they're facing, like their second or third best defender. And it's just, it's, just, it's comical because he's, He's just an amazing player. Sometimes he's undersized relative to everyone else, and you're not going to pick on Jalen or Tatum or Marcus Smart, so you just go after Derek White. But he's such a quality defensive player, so smart, so savvy. Um, I like this. Let's get the fly swatter going. I think that's a pretty good idea. I think it's a good idea, too. And I'm with you, too, on the why teams go after Derek White. I don't get it. Like if you And I know some of these numbers can be wonky, Pina, but he, he like this year he's their best isolation defender. So I, I really don't – I can't comprehend why he's the guy that teams target. All right. I, I want to get you out on a couple of, like, outside of the Celtics realm here that relate to the Celtics. So the Nets are obviously red hot. Durant, as we mentioned earlier, he's playing, like, the MVP that he's been 
in the past. Kyrie hasn't done anything crazy in like three weeks. I mean, we'll see how long that holds up. But this Nets team, we've seen the Celtics owned them in the postseason last year. They beat them earlier this season. Jock Vaughn's obviously changed some things that they're doing schematically defensively. It looks like, I don't know, you would know better than me, but it seems like they're just like switching everything. Is this a team that the Celtics should be worried about? I think you should respect the Nets if you're the Celtics. This is not even close to the same team that they swept in the first round. And by the way, that first round sweep was very close. That wasn't like a traditional sweep in the playoffs. Obviously, there's the buzzer beater in game one. But all those games were like competitive in the fourth quarter. Um, But this isn't that team. Like this team has size on the wing. You add TJ Warren, Yuta Watanabe, um, Joe Harris is healthy and getting back into into stride as the, the key player he is for that team. Um, obviously, they didn't have Ben Simmons in that series. And Ben Simmons, say what you will, like offensively, they've been tremendous this season. When he's on the court with Nick Claxton, which is, that's something. I mean, their offensive rating with those two on the floor in over 200 minutes is like 122 point something. Like that is uh, blistering. So I think this team is for real a contender. Um Kyrie's 50-40-90, potentially going to like start in the All-Star. I mean, he's played really well since he came back from his suspension. But, I mean, to your point, it's there's a lot of basketball left. There's a lot of season left. And this team hasn't necessarily uh, been able to not shoot itself in the foot for (laughs) uh, like lengthy stretches. Uh, So we'll see how it goes. But defensively they've been one of the best defenses in the league since November 1st when Jacques Vaughn took over offensively they've been the best team in the league since Kyrie came back from his suspension on November 20th they're really really good and they can switch everything they have uh size um at every position they don't have to play Seth Curry or Patty Mills like they did last year you can't pick on those guys in a playoff series just a different team and KD looks as good as he ever has he's an MVP candidate um well coached disciplined they seem to like like each other now um and the vibes are great which is wonderful so they're a contender for sure I still think the Celtics are a better team with a little bit more depth and I am interested to see Obviously, Kevin Durant played as he did in the in that series where he struggled mightily, and I'd I'd love to see you know how he can respond to a series like that against the Celtics again, uh, because I think the Celtics defensive game plan would be the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. So it's a fascinating one, and Rob Williams did not really play in that series either. So if Rob is healthy, that's a different um, dimension in the matchup. But the Nets are for real, absolutely. I mean, I think they're the second-best team in the conference. I think they have the second-best record in the conference right now. But I, I'd take them over the Bucks. I'd take them over the Sixers in a heartbeat. They're they're that good. All right, and just before I let you go, I kind of put the Bucks in their own category because I know they've been bad offensively. I think they're 26 in offensive rating at last glance. But I can't really have a judgment on them until I see, like, if they get back a healthy Chris Middleton. If they don't get back a healthy Chris Middleton, we know the result will be, because the Celtics are better than they were last year, the result will actually be worse than it was last year for Milwaukee. But how about Cleveland? Because Donovan Mitchell has 71 the other day. He has another big game the other night. But I look at that team, and I know they beat the Celtics twice earlier this season, And but it's the regular season. I just look at, do they have enough on the wings, right? I mean, you're playing Levert, Okoro, who's never really had, like, the big moment in the NBA. I know he's a high draft pick, but he's never been great for them. 
I just feel like from that perspective, the Celtics have Tatum and Jalen Brown are both really good players. I, do they have enough there like to be able to hang with the Celtics in a series? I think the Celtics are a matchup nightmare for the Cavs in a playoff series. Absolutely. Um, the one guy on there, I mean, we're going to see what they do at the trade deadline. Maybe they're able to pick up a wing. I don't know. Dean Wade's been hurt for a lot of this year. He's like really important for them. So to your point, when you're playing lineups that have Okoro, Evan Mobley, and Jared Allen in them, you're kind of just live and die by Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland pull-ups, which not the worst offense, not the best offense. You have no spacing whatsoever. I don't know if you can win four out of seven against an elite team playing basketball like that. So I think matchup-wise, when it's kind of uh, mismatch time and you're hunting on ball screens late in close games, Tatum or Jalen or even Marcus Smart in the post on Darius Garland, like that's a that's a mismatch right there. Um, just a lot of advantages that the Celtics have. And I don't know if you can get the Cavs to take off one of Jared Allen or one of Evan Mobley in a fourth quarter because they can't score. You've kind of broken their identity a little bit. And I think the Celtics can do that. So just a terrible matchup, in my opinion. I think the Cavs are really good. I don't want to besmirch them. They've had a tremendous defense all season long. And Donovan Mitchell has been on fire and I think Evan Mobley's kind of gotten a bad rap a little bit because his numbers haven't improved, but he's just a tremendous defensive presence. I think he's third in um, uh, defensive real plus minus this season. So they have real players and they're uniquely structured, but matchup wise, like a team like Boston, a team like even Toronto, I think it's just like a terrible matchup for the Cleveland Cavaliers. Um, but we'll see. I mean, they're, they're really good. I feel like they're still a year or two away from actually contending for a title. Um, but right now they're a very good, very good team in the Eastern Conference. All right. That is Michael Pina from the Ringer. Read his stuff there. And we'll work on trying to get the commissioner to get the fly swatter award for a Derek White, which would be fun. Pina, thanks so much for the time and really enjoyed it. Great stuff. Thank you, Brian. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Joining us now from the Herald and the Pats Interference Pod, it is Andrew Callahan. Callahan, what's up, man? How are you? It has been a week, Brian, but it's ending on a good note with you and some good news from Cincinnati. So you got to put a smile on, you know? Yeah, no doubt about that. It's been a crazy week, of course, for the entire NFL. And you had an article on the Herald's website. And when Bill was the Jets defensive coordinator, he's telling the story about when Reggie Brown of the Lions needed CPR on the field. So I don't want to give away your whole story, but I encourage people to read it, of course. But Reggie Brown, the injury is something that Bill has kind of used this week to try to get through to his players because he saw something similar happen when he was the D.C. in New York. Yeah, it was. They were playing a game in 1997, Jets at the Lions regular season finale in the old Silverdome. As Belichick was talking today, he had almost a 10 minute opening statement, which I think people can get swept up in sometimes at how. You know, petty Bill can be your quiet or gruff with the media. But when it comes to serious incidents, he comes through every single time. And so today was another one of those days. And the other thing you could say about Bill, of course, is he has seen virtually everything, as we've seen in a league where 
you know, even on ESPN, right after DeMar collapses, you hear Adam Schefter, who's been around the league a long time, talks to everybody, go, this is unprecedented. This is unprecedented. Well, Bill brings up this incident from 1997 where Reggie Brown goes down. It's a serious spinal cord injury, but his breathing stopped. And so everyone on the field, for what Belichick estimated was about a half hour, is just silent. And you're watching him receive CPR. Then they stabilize his head. They get the ambulance on, take him off the field. So he used that experience to say, look, I know what the Bills and the Bengals are experiencing or as close to it. Here's what's going to happen in the next couple of days. And I think that helps stabilize the Patriots who canceled media on Wednesday. We got five or six players today, open locker room, Belichick spoke. He's going to speak again on Friday. And that's the way they've kind of controlled as much as they can, even though this incident doesn't affect them, but it does affect the team they're about to play and affect, of course, their playoff stakes, which really only come into focus now, given everyone's been focused rightfully on DeMar since Monday night. Yeah, I thought I saw most of Bill's press conference. I thought he did a really good job today as well. But just speaking about Damar Hamlin and how it affects the Patriots, just in terms of being around Gillette, being around the players, hearing from the coaching staff, et cetera, what was that experience like? Yeah, I had to run out a little bit early in the middle of today, but the, the stuff that I got from players was just, you know, things that I had heard from a couple guys texting during the week that it's just been so sobering, man. Like at some point, this is one of those incidents that you're in the locker room, you're in the media, you're at home, like you take a new perspective because we're all participating in this football, this NFL, whether you're feeding the machine or you're the inner cogs of it as some of the players and understanding that this is more of a human moment than an NFL one. And so they were explaining that like we're human beings first and they praise Belichick for saying, look, whatever you need to do to process however much time you need, take it. And so everyone in the organization, he said, was available. And I think they're starting to transition out of this now because the positive health updates from DeMar have kind of freed them to focus on football. Now, they did practice on Wednesday before this great news comes out today that, you know, he's communicating and squeezing hands and the neurological function and cognition is all there. But they're, I think, tentatively taking another step in the direction toward, okay, this is a big game Sunday. We cannot and will not and should not call this do or die on Sunday because we're literally just coming off of a do or die experience. But uh, for them, I, I think they're, you know, there was some trepidation early on, and I think that's wearing off the closer we get to Sunday, knowing also that we'll have a real game to play on Sunday, which we didn't know just 24 hours ago. Yeah, and a massive game at that. We'll get into the game and some of the issues for the Patriots in general, but I just want to get your perspective, of course, on that before we get into some of the other stuff. But another off the field thing is Rodney Harrison. OK, so yeah. he's not a finalist again for the Hall of Fame, Callahan, and Look, 30 and a half sacks in his career, most ever by a defensive back in NFL history. He's one of two guys in the 30-30 club, him and Ray Lewis, 30 sacks, 30 interceptions. And I know you look at the Pro Bowl numbers, only two. I think part of that is people didn't like Rodney Harrison. He was a two-time first-team All-Pro twice, and he did it twice as a second-teamer as well, which is the same as John Lynch, although John Lynch has the nine Pro Bowls. But I mean, I just look back and I, I look at those two players. I think that when I watch it, maybe I'm partial to Rodney because he was a Patriot, et cetera. And I know people don't like him, but I just feel like Rodney Harrison should be in the Hall of Fame. Like if you ask me which guy I would rather have, I would rather have Rodney Harrison than I would John Lynch. Even Belichick has said multiple times, like when they brought him over in 03, it changed things. Like it changed the dynamic of the defense. I, I talked to Ted Johnson a couple of weeks ago, uh, Callahan, about this and playing with Rodney. And he said like, there's no world that Rodney Harrison shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. So first of all, let me get your take. Do you think he should be in? And secondarily, if you do, why do you think he's not in? 
Yeah, he 100% should be in. Now, I get that there's a case like this is not, you know, it's 100% as I just declared it in the eyes of the voters who have not put him in. He's not even become a finalist. This was just the second year he's been a semifinalist. But even if you don't want to do the rings, you don't want to do the Pro Bowls, you don't want to do the All Pros, the guy's a compiler, okay? He hung around the league for 15 years is the most violent person on that football field <laughs> and played his best football probably before he got to New England, like when he was with the Chargers and was on making those all pro teams, that was in San Diego. So you look at this guy and you mentioned the interceptions, you go to 34 there, you mentioned the sacks, you know, you could just go all to the tackles that he had. You're looking at more than half a dozen seasons where he gets well over 100. It's just everything's there. The forced fumbles like this was a playmaker. This was someone who kept offensive coordinators up at night, opposing players and was often the best player on his own defense and even the entire field. Like if he wasn't recognized because, yeah, there's, there's a rightful conversation about him being a dirty player. I think that got cleaned up when he was in New England and not just because that's when he kind of came into the national spotlight. Like, But he was often a player that you look and go, yeah, of course he's one of the best at his position. And to do that for that long, I think, gets you into the Hall of Fame where you mentioned John Lynch. Yeah, the numbers just don't stack up. It's, they're all in Rodney's favor. He should be in camp. Yeah, John Lynch is like the eighth best player. I, I exaggerate slightly in the Tampa Bay Buccaneers <laughs> defense, though. But I mean, think about how many great players they had. The Warren Saps of the world, the Simeon Rices of the world, the Derek Brookses of the world. I mean, you could even argue Rodney Barber played a more important position than did John Lynch. I guess that kind of works against my Rodney argument, too. But you get my point. But you know what I found interesting is I went through this rabbit hole last year just looking through some of this is if you look through the dynasties in the NFL, right, the Steelers had eight Hall of Famers from that group. The Cowboys had five, if you count Dion as a Niner, but still they had five. The Niners, if you count Dion, had eight. If you don't count Dion, they had seven. And you look at the Patriots, right? The first dynasty, Ty Law's in. Brady's obviously going to be in. Vinatieri is going to get in eventually. I think 2025, he becomes eligible. Then you have Richard Seymour. No Rodney. I don't believe that Will Fork's going to get in. And then you look at the second dynasty, it's going to be Brady and Gronk. And I know that Bill, but most of these other coaches are in as well. And like, you look at the Colts, right? So the Colts already have Manning, Harrison, Edger, and James. They're going to get Freeney, and Freeney should be in. I mean, the guy's a Hall of Famer, no doubt about it. Reggie Wayne is a finalist when Rodney Harrison's not a finalist. So they're going to have more than the second Patriots dynasty for sure. They may end up with more than the first Patriots dynasty. So I just find this interesting in terms of, does it make it more impressive, like what Brady and Bill were able to do for all those years where they were able to replace guys where these other teams, I mean, I get it. They're all individual dynasties, but all these other teams had great, great players. And if you look at the Patriots, it's crazy to look at it and say you had a quarterback that did it twice and he didn't have the talent around him that all these other teams did like that. Uh, that's not to making it. It's not an indictment on the Patriots players, right? They had great players. They had unbelievable, uh, unbelievably clutch players. But it is crazy to juxtapose their dynasty to all these other ones. Yeah, I, I would say if you really want to get in the nitty gritty of it, it speaks to the roster building aspect, right? Like Bill is always assembling these middle class veterans to fill out his roster. Some of them pay off in big time. You know, Mike Vrabel comes in, Roman Pfeiffer, you know, Harrison doesn't fit exactly into that mold. But Teddy Bruschi, like if you had a hall of very good, those dynasties are filling up that hall. They have a whole wing. It might be 20 percent for from 2000 on. The other answer to this is, though, when you talk about dynasties, would you rather take your hardware home or have it in a glass case or somewhere in Canton where it can't be touched everywhere? Like, I don't want to have to go to Canton, Ohio to have the place <laughs> where I am memorialized and remembered for life. I want to have that and bring people over to my house and be like, these are my rings. These are my awards. These are my trophies. 
That's what the Patriots get to do forever. They're Super Bowl champions. They're not, you know, in bronze in Canton, which obviously is a great accomplishment. But those teams, you know, I think spoke to the old cliches that they were better than the sum of their parts. They were true teams. And that's why I overcome, you know, a collection of great players with the Colts were all really highly paid and then filled out with a bunch of minimum guys behind them. Yeah. And just so people don't go nuts, like I know Revis is going into the Hall of Fame, but he was like a hired gun for a year. And Julian Edelman, I just don't think he's going to get in despite the unbelievable postseason run that he's had at times, second behind Jerry Rice and receiving yards. I just don't see him getting in because, quite frankly, he doesn't have the regular season resume. If you took Wes Welker's regular season resume and attached Julian Edelman's postseason resume, well, okay, then you got a Hall of Famer. But I did want to get to this. So one of the things the NFL is discussing now, and you can see all these options out there, is the possibility of a neutral site. AFC championship game. And I just remember the COVID year when we didn't have people in the crowd. And I understand what the NFL is trying to do to try to make it even for both teams, because if the Bills had, of course, beaten the Cincinnati Bengals, they have that tiebreaker over Kansas City because they won head to head. But man, Callahan, I just feel like, okay, the Super Bowl is a different event. I want to see a home and I know it could be unfair to one of these teams. I want to see a home AFC championship game. I'm not really in with the neutral side idea. Where do you stand on that? I think it's just a matter of there are no good solutions left. Like the timing yeah. of DeMar Hamlin's collapse, first of all, like there, there's no good timing for that. It's a horrible event. But as far as strictly business goes in football, the week before the regular season's about to end is as bad as it gets. Because I, I didn't know why they were contemplating pushing Bill's bangles back or saying all options are on the table. Like, no, the table should have been cleared the next day. You're on to the next game. You have very important season finales to play and hold. So ultimately then when to do that, there's some inequity. Some teams are playing fewer games, the Bengals and Bills, than the rest of the league. At this point, how do you work around that? So I think the neutral site is the best way to go about this because ultimately you can plan then for contingencies ahead of time and say, hey, if X, Y, and Z happens, this is what we're going to do. If not, this is how it'll play out. So there's still an inherent advantage, I think, for the teams, you know, like Kansas City, if it gets the buy, there's some rest in there. You know, and then you remove that if, you know, they on, go on to the AFC championship game against the Bills or the Bengals. It's just you're trying to make the best of what you have right? because this is an unprecedented scenario as far as the timing and as far as the impact in the playoffs and obviously the player involved. And you just have to make do because otherwise you're talking about adding a teams into the playoffs that didn't know they were still in contention, teams that might have decided to rest guys. And then you have to do it in the a- NFC. And the other other option, if you don't want to add teams to the playoffs, which I don't, is just to play that game and push the Bills Bengals and push everything else back and then remove the bye before the Super Bowl. And the league just doesn't want to do this. This was the simplest, most straightforward solution. Yeah, we'll miss out like the Red Sea in Kansas City, most likely, or the Bills fans going nuts. But if the Bills get to the Super Bowl or the Chiefs get to the Super Bowl, they're not going to care. They'll get to celebrate in the parade, most likely, because who's ever coming out of the AFC is going to win that thing. Yeah, I'm definitely with you on that. And it's a really good point. I mean, there's really not a great solution at this particular point in time in terms of what they're going to do. But I mean, I just love the atmosphere. I remember the 18 game where the Patriots played against the Chiefs in Kansas City, like the atmosphere there. And if the Bills could ever host an AFC championship game, how crazy that would be after the long drought that they've had. But all right, let's get to some Patriots stuff. So I feel like I got to get to the quota where every time I have you on, I got to ask you about Kendrick Bourne, because I mean, this has been a scratch I've been itching all season long, and I basically itch it on every single podcast I do. But so last week, 28 snaps, one more than Aglor. He played more in the second half. But after what we saw, the six receptions for what, 100 yards against the Bengals were really, I mean, he kind of brought them back in that game. I mean, it was really about Kendrick Bourne. I mean, even the one they made on the sideline, that great catch he made, I mean, 
it's good that Mac put it up there. But I mean, you watch that in live time. I'm like, there's no way he caught that. And you see the replay, you're like, holy shit, he did catch that. And so I'm just wondering, like, were you surprised that there wasn't more born last week after what he did the prior week or no? Is this just something we're used to at this point? No, I mean, I've been watching the Patriots offense for 16 weeks and expecting one thing, and then the opposite happened. So when you and I are in agreement that, hey, Kendrick Bourne might get more playing time, do I think it's going to happen? No. But the other part about this is that Bourne, you know, look, I think it's a lot of media attention because he's honest with us. You go back to that loss after the Bills game, and he's saying, we need to scheme up better. We need to play harder. This isn't good top to bottom. Saying things that are never said in that locker room at Foxborough. So, of course, when someone's more open, we're going to pay more attention to them and want Kendrick Bourne to play more so we can continue talking to him. The part about this is he's not been very consistent this year. And you can look at the drops game to game. I think he's got three in his last six games. The false start that against Miami in the third quarter that backs them up. They have to kick a field goal. I think it was third and six becomes third and 11. Like that will drive Bill Belichick absolutely nuts. So if there's a tiebreaker between Nelson Aguilar's not going to get open, but he'll draw a pass interference flag on a curl route on third down in the first quarter and Kendrick Bourne doing that shit, he's going to go with Aguilar. So part <laughs> of this also is, you know, the inconsistency. They're also in pre-planned rotation. So it'll look like Aguilar got three snaps, Bourne gets 10. That's just because the drive kept going. Like that's sometimes how these things work out. Mm. Uh, but no, ultimately I wasn't too surprised for all those reasons. All right. So how about Thornton? So last week, three for 60. And we know that Bill, it's a high draft pick. It's a second round pick. So they're really hoping that this kid turns into something. And Obviously, he was hurt to begin the season. He had that nice celebration where it wasn't a touchdown in the game last week. But we're entering the final week of the season, Callahan. What have you made of his rookie season, and how do you feel about him going forward? Look, Tyquan Thornton had a slow start, obviously, with a broken collarbone in the preseason, comes back. They, you know, look to feature him a little bit more like that game at Cleveland where he's taking, you know, the jet sweep for a touchdown. Those were actually Kendrick Bourne's plays, but then they hand the ball off and obviously he gets and produces with those opportunities. The thing about him is you haven't seen a steady growth, which even with the slow start, you would figure you'd see maybe Thanksgiving going on to Christmas. And there are signs here and there, like his touchdown against Miami was the same concept. They actually ran a few weeks earlier against Arizona where he caught the ball and stepped two yards shy of the goal line, which obviously, you know, third and goal, third and 10 from the 10, you need to get in. And he did that against Miami, which was some progress. But overall, he's catching two passes and six targets. He's dropping a ball over the middle on a drag route where there's not a whole lot of separation against zone coverage because that's just the route they're going to leave open underneath. And so the little things about, you know, shaking off of the top of his routes or varying his release package were things that got you excited when you looked at his college tape and like, okay, there's some potential here. They just haven't built on that. Again, I think there are some instances, but it's a consistency in which he can build upon those. Doesn't give you a whole lot of hope because at some point the numbers are the numbers, slow start or not. Yeah, and you hope maybe if something changes from a coaching perspective next year, he can have a better second year than he had a rookie campaign. And you've been all over this with the route spacing with these guys. I mean, you go back to two weeks ago, Callahan, they got two injuries because the route spacing was bad. Henry goes out because he runs into Janu. And then Jonu Smith ended up getting a concussion when Kendrick Bourne was right next to him. So those are two plays where you legitimately had injuries there. So how come this continues to be a problem like this late in the season? It'd be one thing if it was a couple of games early on, new offensive coordinator, blah, blah, blah. But how is this still happening? Yeah, there are a bunch of smaller different answers, but let's just go with the one big and obvious one. And it's coaching. OK, like the reason that these plays are happening so close together, honestly, aren't because they're drawing them up to be that way. But the offense was streamlined and simplified so that the Patriots could coach 
what Matt Patricia and Joe Judge could coach. And in that philosophy, then, if you're going to be a simpler offense and just simply out-execute on Sundays, even though the opponent might know from this smaller menu of concepts what's coming, you have to be on your details. They're not on any of their details. It could be a route stem for Johnu Smith. It could be, you know, the depth of the particular route or just the timing in it. Sometimes you need to vary those when you've got a lot of these pick plays, especially like, like to run near the goal line. It's just not there. And so they did this in favor of the coaches who have not returned the favor of drilling down the basics of everything I just talked about, footwork, timing, everything with the route concepts. And so when they still happen this late in the season, yeah, you could blame the players for having a bad game or here or there, but then you're missing the bigger picture of every decision that led up to this and the day-to-day coaching they get behind the scenes. Like they're a function you know, of their habits to date. Those habits are built up by the coaching they received, and it's just not been good enough. Yeah, and speaking of that, Matt Patricia, year one as the offensive coordinator of the New England Patriots, has been basically as bad as we all predicted it was going to be. Nobody thought that this was a good idea, except, I guess, with the exception of Bill Belichick. Everybody thought this was a bad idea. It's turned out it's been a really bad idea. So now over the past couple of weeks, before the NFL world kind of stood still, the number one topic here was Bill O'Brien. And is Bill O'Brien going to come back? Him and the Alabama Crimson Tide just had a big win in their bowl game. His quarterback was tremendous. I feel like they were doing a lot of cool things offensively, which the Patriots don't do. I mean, you go back to him, too, like with the Texans. I mean, he did have some issues like he loved to run the ball on first down with Deshaun Watson, which obviously you'd like to see that change. And maybe it has since he went to Alabama. He got way too run heavy on first down. But my overwhelming point is. I'm not saying that Bill O'Brien is the best offensive coordinator to ever live. I'm not saying that he's Kyle Shanahan, who probably is the best guy doing it right now, but he is a massive improvement over Matt Patricia. So do you think ultimately now, after we're hearing all this stuff, that they are going to land on Bill O'Brien and Bill O'Brien is going to want to come back to the Patriots? From my perspective, I don't really know what his interest is in the Patriots, by the way, if he wants to come back here. like I, I feel like he's got a better gig right now than the Patriots job, but if they can get him, I would do it in a second. Well, two things on that, uh, having covered college football when it's the offseason, that's really the season for the coaches who are on the road recruiting kids nonstop, making phone calls, DMs, text, everything. And I don't think that's really in Bill O'Brien's wheelhouse to woo 16 to 18 year olds to get them to come to Alabama nonstop instead of, you know, seeing his family uh, when football is not in season. The other part about this is I think Bill O'Brien has interest because the Patriots have interest. They're not so hot on Bill O'Brien down in Tuscaloosa. And look, part of that is this outrageous standard that they have for the program down there, obviously based on their success. As far as O'Brien coming to New England, you, you hit it on the head. He's an obvious fit. He checks all the boxes, experienced coordinator, been in the system. He's a part of the family for them. I think he, you know, he coaches quarterbacks well, develops them, has obviously been a coordinator and head coach. The thing is, the biggest box on that list that Belichick, I think, will want to check is not a flight risk. And that's exactly who Bill O'Brien is, because if he succeeds as an offensive coordinator in New England, he's gone the second he can get a head coaching job. Like, that's really what he wants in the NFL. It's not to come crawling back like Matt Patricia and Joe Judge and Josh McDaniels once upon a while, all the way back to Foxborough, rehab their image and leave. Like, that's what coaches do in Tuscaloosa. And he hasn't done that at Alabama, where you've seen everyone, Steve Sarkeesian, and all these different coaches come out of. So that's the issue. And especially if Belichick sees Bill O'Brien as a potential threat to him down the road. Because let's play this out. If mm. the Patriots go 8-9 and nine this year and then only go 9-8 and eight or 10-7 and seven next year, Kraft would have the grounds to dismiss Belichick. Like you're talking about several years now without a playoff win, maybe not even making the playoffs at that point if they go back-to-back. If Kraft sees an in-house replacement in Bill O'Brien, who now has the approval, at least the media, who he's consuming at some point you know, in his day-to-day life, 
Maybe he just promotes from within and keeps the continuity in all the systems that Belichick leaves in place and just kicks Bill out the door. Of course, Belichick doesn't want that. And for those two reasons, if I had to bet, I don't think Bill O'Brien's actually here next season, even though I told WEI something very different just last week. Wow, that, that that's a great point, though. I never thought about that, that Bill O'Brien could actually be, as crazy as it sounds, right, a legitimate threat to Bill Belichick because of what's happened with Bill since Brady left the organization. And Bill O'Brien, you look at his resume as a head coach, he's one of the guys that's actually had success, right? I believe his record's 52 and 48. And it's not like he was coaching this great franchise. He was coaching the Houston Texans. Now, if you look at that going forward, that could be something that would affect Belichick. So I wonder if Kraft would be the guy that says, hey, Bill, you got to do this. Like, hey, no more of this Patricia stuff. You got to bring Bill O'Brien in. So, okay, let's go with the hypothetical that it's not Bill. I hope it is Bill O'Brien, but if it's not Bill O'Brien, they can't, even Belichick knows he can't have Patricia do this again, right? There's no way he thinks it's going to get like way better in year two, right? I mean, he's got to be done with the Patricia thing. Yeah, I, I would think so. And I know Albert Breer from Sports Illustrated floated that, you know, Kraft has talked to different people in the building, said he's upset and Albert suggested that you could have a new offensive coordinator come in with entirely new position coaches. I'm not there yet, not based on anything I've heard, but just from the simple fact that we've never seen that before. And look, we've never seen this offense before, not since 1995 in New England in terms of just futility. But like Belichick, again, wants to stay within the family. The system is Belichick and Belichick is the system. So if Patricia is gone, I don't foresee some sort of Kyle Shanahan acolyte coming in and saying, this is how you run outside zone and run boots off of it, which they tried so desperately in the spring and the summer and then chucked it out the window. I think you would see someone like a Nick Cayley, whose contract is set to expire, their tight ends coach, who you could promote from within that Belichick has passed over. But Cayley wants to be an offensive coordinator. If you say, okay, we'll give you the title or something similar, and they'll do interviews on the outside and ultimately go with him, that gives you some continuity. He's not a flight risk. You can build the system back out again, as opposed to the simplified version under Joe and Patricia that obviously hasn't worked. Yeah, I mean, that would be great, too. I always thought that he would have been more of a candidate than he was. I thought maybe he is the guy. Like, maybe they actually think that he's going to be a great he's assistant. He's a smart guy. Yeah. yeah. That, and, like, this whole idea of uh, – I talked to Charlie Weiss a couple of weeks ago, and he talked about, like, the tight ends coaches having, like, some of the best feel of all the offensive coaches because they deal so much with the running game and the passing game. So I thought maybe that would be a fit, but apparently it's not a fit right now. Hopefully next year, anybody but Matt Patricia is the guy. So I didn't want to get to this because we talk about a lot of negative stuff with the Patriots, but the defense has been outstanding. And I almost like feel bad that we don't talk about the defense that much, right? I'm, I know you write about the defense, but we don't talk about the defense that much because the offense is the storyline. But if you look at some of this, I mean, Duggar's had an outstanding season. We know about the three defensive touchdowns. And look, they've had misses in the draft defensively. They've had more offensively, I would say. But you look at it, Duggar and Uche in the same year, that's pretty good. Jack Jones, before the injury, played pretty well. Barmore's been dealing with an injury, but I feel like he had an impact in that game on Sunday, and I loved him doing the little Jalen Waddle dance after that as well. But <laughs> how would you grade the drafting on the defensive side over the past three or four years? Yeah, much better. Much, much better. I mean, the hollowing out of this roster started in 16-17, but those drafts are just complete misses from Belichick. And then you have to dive into free agency in 2021, pay to fill all of those holes. Naturally, some of those contracts are going to be bust. <clears throat> Johnny Smith, <clears throat> Nelson Aguilar. But defensively, 
Matt Judon was a huge hit. Like, we don't need to talk about that anymore. Even Jalen Mills' contract, we haven't seen him since Thanksgiving, but they brought him in thinking he would play safety. Then you move him out to corner. He's been a solid number two when he plays. And in addition to those drafts that you mentioned, Duggar coming around and Uche, which a lot of these guys, I think, have had slow developments because of the COVID year. No preseason, no training camp, no contact. And then you boost 2021, and now here you are this second year breakout really in year three, like, yes, it's absolutely coming around. I think the other part about that too is just the coaching has been better and not to bring it back to the offense, but you look what happens when they lose Mills on Thanksgiving. December 1st against the Bills, they still have about a 50-50 split man to zone coverage. And Stefan Diggs does what you would expect with 50-50 split man to zone coverage and roasts them in man-to-man. Since that night, however, they have pivoted to playing more snaps of zone than any defense in the entire league. And yes, they're only two and two over that stretch and they've had some bad losses, but you're playing to the talent in your secondary or whatever's left. And you're still holding teams like Miami with Tyree Kill and Jalen Waddell, you know, limiting them to 102 yards. And I think that speaks to Gerard Mayo. I think Steve Belichick has done more than he's been given credit for. And in that secondary, look, they're they're always sound. And I think so that speaks to the talent you mentioned. I think it's the coaching, the whole operation. Like that's obviously been keeping them afloat this year. And it's because of the groundwork laid in 2020 and 2021 and the active work they're doing week to week now in 2022. Well, you mentioned Mayo there and this defense has been great. And I know that Steve Belichick is the play caller, but do you think we know that he was close to the Denver job last year. Do you think Mayo ends up getting a gig this turnaround or do you think it'll be another one? It's tough. I know he's going to explore all his possibilities. And that includes not only head coaching jobs, but defensive coordinator positions across the league, if anyone would have him. And and there were people I talked to at the Combine last year that said they expect him to be a head coach in a year or two. So part of it's the contract situation, which reportedly is going to be up after this year. He sneered at the idea of being a co-defensive coordinator last offseason, which was proposed to him as kind of a way to, you know, satiate him a little bit. But it's just it's something that I think they're in real danger of losing him. I would be shocked if he's still here in the 2024 season. Next year, who knows? Obviously, that would require some sort of contract extension. But if, if even if he gets a promotion to defensive coordinator and stays in 2023, which would obviously mean you know he's risen technically above Steve Belichick, which seems unlikely to happen, he could still interview for head coaching jobs, and they can't do anything about it because it's a promotion higher elsewhere. So. That's the issue for the Patriots, the guy who's open about his aspirations, really well thought of around the league. And the only thing that's holding him back is experience. So this will only be his fourth season as an assistant. But when he got here, he was already the fastest rising assistant ever under Belichick. So I think soon he'll be the fastest rising coach in the entire league, whether it's as a defensive coordinator or a head coach. Yeah, and I know Bill pointed out that both him and Troy Brown helped him out a lot this week with everything that was going on. So obviously that's a bonus as well, that obviously the players gravitate towards him. All right, just getting into this game coming up on Sunday. I mean, Josh Allen entered last week, and obviously it's still the case, the most turnover-worthy plays, according to Pro Football Focus. And you look at some of the other stuff, though, like this Bills team is second in yards per rush, and it's not because of their running backs. It's because Josh Allen averages over six yards per carry, six and a half. And I know he didn't, what is like eight for 20 against the Patriots the first time, but they didn't really need to do anything in the second half. They didn't feel like the Patriots could threaten them offensively. But is the Patriots' best hope to actually, I'm not even saying win the game, stay in the game? Is just that Josh Allen throws him a couple? Because we have seen this defense is obviously very opportunistic. Yeah, no question about it. And I think it's impossible to predict how the emotional factor of this game is going to impact what the first quarter looks like versus the second quarter. Like you're playing six days after you think you might have witnessed a teammate dying on the field. And now suddenly, you know, it looks like he's rounding a corner in his recovery and should make a full one. Like that is just an energy you don't get from anything except for experiences 
like in your death one. So for the Bills, I think Josh Allen has been throwing the ball up, as you mentioned. He did it in that first game, and they dropped it. They got one at the end of the first half, but he was he was just trying to give the ball away. They were saying, no, 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 that's okay, that's okay. The <laughs> other part about this is, you know, they played a ton of dime defense, like from the outset. This was Bill Belichick against Buffalo in that Super Bowl those years ago with the Giants saying, we want you to run the ball. He just dusted off that game plan against them and said, just do it. We're going to prevent these big throws downfield from Josh Allen and hope that in the process of these long drives, he'll throw one up. So they need to grab those. Obviously, they need to not turn the ball over. And at some point, you need to get a, a, a bounce here or there because they're the more talented team. They have the better quarterback. Yes, they're better coached, but they're hanging around because they're scoring on defense and have for four straight weeks. So if you season that opportunity, not only just grab an interception, but bring it back to the house for seven, you kind of erase the spread right now, which is Buffalo minus seven. And that's where I think this game could get interesting. But how it starts with all of that energy and how it might carry the Bills into the fourth quarter, I, I mean, who knows? That's something we just can't possibly measure right now. Yeah, it feels like to me, if the Patriots are going to stay in this, they're going to need a defensive score. They're probably going to need a big team, uh, big play on special teams. Obviously, it's not coming from the own the Patriots' own punting unit, which has been the worst in the NFL this season. But I just I don't feel great about the offense being able to move the ball with any sort of consistency because obviously we get caught up with Josh Allen and Stephon Diggs, et cetera. But this Bills defense, even though they don't have Vaughn Miller, they're not rushing the passer at the same level. It's still an elite defense. And what we've seen all season long is it's tough to believe that the Patriots offense is going to be able to move the ball methodically down the field. I mean, you look at that game last week. That's not a great defense that you were playing against. And the Patriots, from an offensive perspective, barely did anything like there's been no real moment this season where you felt like, OK, this offense has really made progress, except against like really bad. Te- like Minnesota, that's the one game where I thought, OK, they're moving the ball, but then they made some boneheaded mistakes. So that's where I'm at. It's just like even if you limit Josh Allen, I just don't ex- I expect it to be like the last time they played where, OK, the Bills offense doesn't have to do too much because the Patriots offense isn't doing anything. Yeah. And yeah, there's no reason to expect anything different. The the really interesting part about this game to me, at least schematically, like we talked about, they simplified and streamlined the offense in the offseason because of Judge and Patricia and they just want to out execute you. That's fine. The foundation of that, of course, also has to deal with Buffalo, who since Sean McDermott got there has held the Patriots to fewer than 20 offensive points per game. And that includes three Brady years. So they had something that fundamentally breaks the McDaniel system. And then they change the system. And I think has to counter that because Buffalo doesn't do a whole lot defensively, but they disguise exceptionally well. So when the Patriots have all these option routes that, okay, we're going to run this route against this coverage. And then it changed post snaps. Like you have a miscommunication and Buffalo playing a few simple schemes knows what you're going to do in response to those gets to rally the football and make the stop. Like the Patriots don't have any answers. So That's where I think if you're going to do something different now might be the time. And it also just might be the fault of this offense and the failure to change appropriately, where maybe if they had executed some of the Shanahan concepts and carried them into the season successfully with coaches who obviously hadn't coached that style before, maybe they'd have a shot. But they needed to adapt. They did. And I think they just went in the wrong direction, doubling down on what they used to do versus maybe something new to crack this defense that still obviously has their number. All right, Callahan, I'll get you out on two fun ones. Maybe only one fun one, depending on your first answer. So I've been in the camp that Brady should go to the Raiders. I mean, obviously, they're looking to move on from Derek Carr. You have Devontae Adams. You got Waller. You got Renfrey. You got Josh Jacobs. You got your old buddy, Josh McDaniels. I know there were some issues or whatever the last year, but I mean, you know the system. Tom Brady's going to run his offense. I feel like that's a perfect fit for Brady next year. Now, I don't know if it's going to be different because of Obviously, his family situation has changed dramatically over the past six months or so. 
But where do you think, or do you think Tom will be playing somewhere next year? If you do think he comes back, where do you think it's going to be? So I love the idea that people push Brady to Vegas. And you didn't say this, but others have that. Like, he's really good friends with Dana White. Of course he's going to go to Vegas. Like, I have friends who live in Tuscaloosa, okay? And I'm not going to Alabama anytime soon, just to hang with my guy. I was in my best friend's wedding down there. But he, I don't think, plays next year. And I think the Vegas connection is an obvious one. But if you're Josh McDaniels and you're Dave Ziegler, look, you lost a lot of shine and leverage, frankly, when you came in in year one and you blow as many fourth quarter leads as you did, because that's a fundamental elemental failure of the organization, just not protect something you had. Like you had all those games in your grasp and you let them go. That comes down to coaching, decision-making actively, and obviously the roster. I don't think you solve those things or look at yourself in the offseason and go, oh, if he had Brady, we wouldn't have lost all those games. So I think they need to do things where they're not bringing in a player who's going to take some of the control potentially further out of their hands with an owner who would obviously be happy to have Brady. You need to build something sustainable. And I think that's something they want to do. Bringing in a 46-year-old guy who will want to have everything run his way, you know, especially if he's going across the country further away from his kids, I don't think it's something he wants to do. I'm not plugged in you know, anymore with anyone even close to Brady, but it's just hard for me to see McDaniels and Ziegler wanting to do that if everything's going to be on Brady's terms, which I think is the only way that he goes anywhere. Okay, so then you can't answer my second one. Who do you think Josh's quarterback will be next year in Las Vegas then? Oh, buddy. Uh, I think he would love for it to be Jarrett Stidham, but I don't think that's the right answer because I think we know who Jarrett Stidham is. Great as he played against San Francisco, um, I think it's going to be a rookie. I think because of some of the reasons I just mentioned, they want to build something sustainable. I know they don't have as much draft equity and they need to fill out a lot of holes in their defense. But Dave Ziegler has also shown that he's got, you know, some ones that clang, so to speak. Like he'll make a big swing that they don't in New England, like trading for a big time wide receiver, giving him a huge contract or trading up in the first round where the Patriots just waited for Mac to fall into their lap. Maybe it wasn't the best decision when Justin Fields was just five picks ahead if you wanted to trade up. So I think they make an aggressive move to go make that deal happen. Um you know, and I think right now they're actually like maybe slotted eight or nine. So maybe that jump isn't as big as we think. Wow. That would be interesting. Josh McDaniels. I wonder how Devontae Adams would react to that. Like what he asked for another trade. And if he does, Bill better be on the horn, man, because he's seeing all these other teams with elite wide receivers and what they're able to do. So if, if he does become available, the Patriots should be in on that, although the cap hit would be uh, significant if they made a trade for Devontae Adams. All right, that is Andrew Callahan from the Herald, the Pats Interference Pod as well. Callahan, safe travels to Buffalo. I know that's going to be an emotional scene on Sunday. And hey, man, thanks so much for joining us throughout the season. I really enjoyed it. And hopefully we'll we'll chat again soon, hopefully at least prior to the draft. Definitely. Anytime, man. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff from both Andrew Callahan and Michael Pina. A lot of fun talking Pats and C's. All right, it is time now to get to our greatest Boston bet of the week, brought to you by our friends at FanDuel. Okay, so I don't see the Patriots beating the Bills on Sunday, as I talked with Callahan about, but I'll get into a little nice little bet that you can have on the Pats coming up in that game. But before that, okay, 
So here's something I'm going to give you. This is the Patriots parlay. So if you're like me and you don't think the Patriots are going to get into the postseason by beating Buffalo, but there's still a chance, right? So this is the Pats lose parlay, which is plus 545. 545, people, okay? Let's fucking go. So here it is. Three-legger. The Jaguars, who are going to win, okay? They beat the Titans, okay? So you get that one. The Titans have Josh Dobbs at quarterback. So the Jags should roll in that game. The Jaguars are playing really good football. So that's the first thing the Patriots need to happen to get into the postseason without beating the Bills. Here's the second thing. And this one is one that I feel good about as well. The Jets beat the Dolphins. Remember, two was dealing with a concussion. Teddy Bridgewater, as we saw in the game last week, he got banged up. He's been limited in practice. It could be Skylar Thompson. They signed Mike Glennon. That Miami team from an injury perspective with the quarterback position is a mess right now. So I like the Jets to win. The last one is going to be the toughest for the plus 545 Patriots loser parlay is the Browns beat the Steelers. Now, the Steelers are playing really good football. Watson really has not found a rhythm in that Cleveland offense. Nick Chubb is still Nick Chubb. The defense for Cleveland has been good. But the only one that I'm really feeling wishy-washy about is that Browns game. Can the Browns beat the Steelers? But that's just a little fun one if you're rooting for the Patriots to get into the postseason and you don't think they're going to beat the Bills, plus 545 for that to happen. Jags win, Browns win, Jets win. Okay, now let me get to this one. I got a nice little same-game parlay, Pats and Bills in that game on Sunday. This is for plus 323. Over seven and a half points in the third quarter. This is a really low number. So remember, and I know this stuns you, the Patriots have now moved into number one in the NFL in third quarter points per game. They're at 7.1. Can you believe it? As my friend Joe Castiglione would say, the Bills are fifth at 6.2. So I like that to hit. Okay. Seven and a half points in the third quarter for both these teams. That feels like a really nice line. Okay. So that's the first part of the plus 323. The second part is I'm going over 42 and a half points in the game. Now I know last time it was 34 total points. But the Bills stepped off the gas in the second half. I don't see that happening. They average 28 points per game. You know they're going to be emotional in this game. And they're second in scoring percentage. They score in 45.7% of their drives. So I believe the Bills come out and they put up a ton of points in this game. So I think that 42.5 is going to hit. And if the Patriots want to at least keep this thing close, they're going to have to score points against this Bills team because you know the Bills on the other side are going to be lighting up the scoreboard despite the fact that the Patriots have a really good defense. All right, then the last one is this. I like the Bills to go over 12 and a half points in the first half. The Bills on the season, they're second in the NFL in first half points per game at 15.7. They had 17 in the first half against the Patriots last time out. So I like the Bills to go over that 12 and a half. So that's basically for a plus 323. So again, third quarter over seven and a half points, over 42 and a half for the game, and over 12 and a half points in the first half for the Bills to get that plus 323. All right, so thanks to our friends at FanDuel. I really hope the loser bet for the Patriots hits. That would be really entertaining if that one actually hits. All right, one carryover thought I wanted to get to in terms of the Raphael Devers situation. And if you missed the emergency pod we did with Lou Merloni, check that out. We went through not only the Devers situation, but basically we went through the entire roster, had a ton of fun with that. We talked about the bullpen, the rotation, et cetera. Lou's the best guy in the market talking baseball. So if you want to get our thoughts on the Devers situation in totality, to make sure to go back and listen to that. It's in the feed. All right. So it's been clear I've been low on Heimblum, and getting the Devers thing done was clearly a necessity for this organization. It was not an option. It was, hey, you have to get this thing done, right? Like, so going forward, though, I feel like 
they could have already had this done if you go to Devers after 19, where he still had four years left under club control after he led Major League Baseball or led the American League in doubles after 19. When you traded Mookie in 2020, like you could have got a reasonable deal done with Devers, but I don't really care. I mean, you got Devers signed long term. It's not like I'm cutting the checks for Rafael Devers. All I care about is you have him here for the foreseeable future. So that brings me to this. And as crazy as it sounds, you could have a nice trio here for the next decade or so. And this is why I feel like I've come to the conclusion, especially after talking to Lou about this earlier in the week, is I feel like the most important player in the Red Sox organization this year is Tristan Cassis, right? Because if you look at Cassis, we saw him come out last year and get his opportunity, very small sample size, because remember, he had the injury last year with the ankle situation. So he would have been up with the big club sooner than he actually was. But if you look at some of the numbers on Cassis and look, 95 plate appearances. So the numbers are very, very small in terms of trying to read something off that. But one thing that you do like is he only swung at 16.7% of pitches out of the zone at the big league level. Juan Soto led Major League Baseball in that particular category at 19.9. Cassis was at 16.7 once he came up. Okay, now he hit five home runs in his 95 plate appearances. So that's 5.3%. And he's a big guy. We know 6'4", he's over 250. You look at Austin Riley, he had 38. He was at 5.5. Remember, as I mentioned, Cass is at 5.3. Goldschmidt hit 35. He was at 5.4%. Cass is at 5.3. If you look at Otani, 5.1%. Cassis was better than that at 5.3. I'm not saying that he's better than Otani, but you get my point. So the power tool is real. Now, he's got to clean up some of the swing and miss stuff. I would like him to be a little bit more aggressive. I know I reference, I love the discipline at the plate, but once in a while, man, you got to take some hacks. But if he has a breakout season, now you have the middle of your order set up for the next decade with Rafael Devers, of course, who he's a lock. I mean, he's a sure thing. He's one of the best sluggers in the game. And then you add Cassis to the equation. You feel like, okay, you got your 3-4 or 2-3, wherever you want Rafi in the lineup. I know that Rafi's favorite position in the lineup is to hit second. But you have that core in terms of your power hitters going forward. So that is the big guy this year for the Red Sox. And look, there's other guys, the Bayos of the world. Obviously, you need to bounce back from sale. But I'm talking about for the long-term future of the organization, Cassis is the most important guy this season because you already took care of your slugger. Devers is here, okay? He's going to be part of this equation going forward because there's Marcelo Mayer, and he's the third piece to the trio in terms of the three guys that you're building around now. Devers is one, Cassis is two, and Mayer in, in no particular order. Of course, he plays shortstop, the most important one of the most important positions in the game. He's third on this list in terms of the, that trio. And the difference between Mayer and Cassis is I feel like Marcelo Mayer is more of a guarantee, right? Last year he ended up seventh in MLB.com's rankings in terms of the prospects. He's six foot three, he's about a buck ninety, and he's only 19 years old. He's unbelievably athletic. If you haven't seen his highlights, I encourage you to go check him out. His hands are stupid, unbelievably quick hands, and he has power at that shortstop position. So my whole thing is Rafi's a given. I believe in, look, maybe I'll look like an idiot for this in a couple of years, but Mayer was the fourth overall pick in the draft. He would have went higher, but other teams don't want to pay the slot money that the Red Sox can because obviously they're a major league team. It's a weird thing with major league baseball. But if Cassis is real... If the power for Tristan Cassis is real and the consistency is real, I think he's going to be good enough defensively. I know last year he was slightly below average, minus one defensive run save, but he looks like he plays a really good first base. Maybe part of that is I'm thinking about the guys they had before him, the Franchi Corderos of the world playing first base, the Bobby Dahlbacks of the world playing first base, but I think he plays good enough defensively. 
And if he can give you 25 to 35, somewhere in that range of home runs, well, then you're really feeling like, okay, you're cooking with gasoline here, right? Because then you got those three guys for the long-term sustainability. Now, it doesn't take away from what Bloom has done over the past two years with the big league club. I'm obviously still irritated about that, just like a lot of you are. But the whole idea of his long-term sustainability, if you will, it appears that this would be what he was looking for, right? To build around a trio of guys and have them here for the next decade or so. And that's what you would have. That's exactly what you would have if Cassis hits. I believe Mayer is a slam dunk. We know what Devers is. If Cassis hits, then that is a huge development. And quite frankly, not just for the future of the organization, the Red Sox need Cassis this year. Okay, because where else is the power coming from in the lineup? Story, okay, maybe he gets back to the 25 home run level like he's been in the past. We know Devers is going to hit for power, but where else is the power coming from? They need Cassis this year, and most importantly, they need him going forward. So that's my most important piece right now in the Red Sox organization is Tristan Cassis this season. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days.